Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and today my guests and I will be discussing the role of social workers during the period of conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles. For the conversation I'm joined by social workers Phil Hughes, Jerry Madden and Carolyn Yurt, and as usual, we are meeting over Zoom. Phil, Jerry, and Carolyn, how are you all doing? Doing great. Great to be here, and lovely to see Jerry, Phil, and Andy, albeit virtually. Thanks very much, Carolyn, and uh, like yourself, delighted to be here and to uh, be given this opportunity to take part. So, thank you very much, Andy. Yeah, good to see you, Carolyn, and Jerry, and Andy, and equally, I'm excited about engaging a bit further in terms of the research that we did um, on the impact of the troubles on social workers. So it's good to pick this up again. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being with me. I'll just take a minute now to introduce you all to the listeners. Phil started her social work career in 1980, working in children's services and then in mental health throughout the troubles. She's been an approved social worker since 1988 and was involved in arranging formal admissions to psychiatric hospitals during this time, which involved working with paramilitary and community leaders to safely access patients. Phil is a practice teacher and for 15 years worked as a mental health trainer supporting mental health social workers. Jerry has been a social worker since 1978 and he spent most of his career in mental health services. He retired in 2014, but returned to practice part-time earlier this year to assist with implementation of the new mental capacity legislation in Northern Ireland. He's currently Honorary Treasurer of the Social Workers' Union and a member of the SWU Executive. Carolyn has been National Director for Basel Northern Ireland since 2010. Prior to working for Basel, she spent 11 years with the Northern Health and Social Care Trust as a social worker and manager within the field of mental health. So no doubt you can tell by our accents that all four of us live in Northern Ireland. We all have our own experiences of the conflict and therefore we each have an understanding of what the troubles were. But I'd hasten to add that given the nature of the period we're going to discuss, it would be wrong to assume that each of us has exactly the same understanding. But putting that to one side, um, and given that many of our listeners won't be as familiar with the situation here as we are, Carolyn, could you give us a brief overview of what the troubles were and why the conflict arose? Certainly, Andy. And I think, yeah, you'll discover in Northern Ireland that everyone you speak to has a story to tell, whether that's personally, professionally, often both. And we do almost assume or always assume that, that people understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about the troubles. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, we've all probably reflected on the term the troubles. You know, it's a very parochial, almost a gentle term to describe what uh, what was uh, a horrific period in our history. Um, 30 years of violence and, and civil strife uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, some 3,700 people were killed. Um, over half of them were civilians. And uh, tens of thousands of people psychologically and, and physically traumatized. Um, and I suppose it is important to say that um, for those of us taking part in this conversation this afternoon and for people listening, you know, some of what we talk about might be difficult for them. And I, I know any time we've talked to anyone about their experiences, um, we, we've been really, I think, touched by how often for people it's the first time they've really talked about it. So it. it just to be mindful that some of it might trigger people, they might find it difficult, uh, but we'll, we'll talk about our own experiences in, in the most sensitive way uh, possible. So Northern Ireland, Andy, was, was really ripped apart by sectarian violence and segregation. Um, there were isolation, fear, trauma became a part of everyday life, really, in Northern Ireland. The troubles are, are sort of viewed as starting in 1969, uh, and the period in time that certainly our research and the, 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 the name denotes is right up until the Good Friday Agreement in, in 1998. 
Uh, and I'm sure we'll pick up some of these themes this afternoon. I mean, the very language and narrative of the Troubles, you know, remains contested. So some 21 years after peace uh, in this country um, has been brought about and we have, you know, the Good Friday Agreement brought around the Northern Ireland Assembly and we have a democratic government system. Um, that that history, I think we've never had a, a shared understanding of our history. And so the, la- the, the language used to describe it can still be quite separate uh, and segregated. So some people describe it as a war with occupying forces. Others refer to it as armed struggle. Others still talk about terrorism perpetrated by illegal paramilitary groups. And so that sense of a contested identity in history, which is still very much with us uh, in, in 2020, will hopefully give some understanding of the complexity and, and the difficulties that, that were around, um, uh, the, the legacy of which um, remain with, um, with, with all of us. I mean, our communities, which were... Uh, you know, largely segregated. Um, we had very clear, de- clear demarcation of areas with flags, painted curbstones, murals. Do you know, those are still evident today in many of our societies. Uh, many people who visited Northern Ireland may well see those. And so that's the context, I suppose, in which we 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 lived and worked and grew up, uh, and within which the social workers who took part in uh, in our research and who worked through at that time were working in. Thanks, Carolyn. And yes, it was back last year that Baswa published its research study, Voices of Social Work Through the Troubles, which Phil mentioned earlier on. Do you remember it was back in February 2019? We had 100 people, more than 100 people in a lecture theatre in the Ulster Museum. We were all sitting side by side. We had drinks afterwards. It seems like a lifetime ago, Andy, doesn't it? Uh, It seems like a lifetime ago. It really does. Anyway, the research was funded by Baswa and the Northern Ireland Social Care Council, and was conducted by a team of academics led by Dr. Joe Duffy from Queen's University Belfast and including Professor Jim Campbell from University College Dublin and Professor Carol Tassoon from New York University. And it was groundbreaking in that it profiled for the first time the experiences of social workers who practised during the conflict. Phil and Jerry, you both participated in the research. Would you like to share some examples of what it was like to practice in Northern Ireland during the Troubles? You know, what challenges did you face? I think the first thing I, I, I would say, Andy, was that the actual research was the first time that anybody actually, in any sort of formal sense, sat down with me and uh, said, what was it like to practice social work in the Troubles? Um, it was a wee bit like that. A, a, a modern take on uh, that sort of a theme of tell us what you did during the war, Dad, you, you know, that used to be around. So um, I I suppose one thing I would reflect on is I think a lot of our experience, my experiences that I had during the Troubles, um, I carried about almost in an unconscious way. And it was only when Joe Duffy sat me down and said, tell me about this and uh, as you said I suppose my own experiences ranged uh, and they just from I started in 1978 and I went to work in West Belfast as it was then which was one of the the areas very much characterized by a lot of the violence right through to the far end um, where you know I now I, I for the past 30 years, I've lived and worked in OMA. And my experiences in terms of this research were bookended by the OMA bombing um, in 1998, which ironically came three months after the Good Friday Agreement. So there's a huge breadth of experience there and certainly the opportunity that we were given in terms of this research was probably the the first opportunity, I think, where anybody, as I, as I said before, a hand over to Phil, who sat me down and said, tell me what it was like. OK, I'm happy to pick up, um, Andy, just in terms of, of some of the comments that Jerry had made around carrying those feelings around nearly subconsciously. I think that I had personally buried quite a few of the feelings and even some of the memories of times when I'd been really frightened um, in those early days working in Belfast during the hunger strike. 
period and being caught up um, in riots and not being quite sure how to safely extract myself from some areas where I'd gone to do some child protection work. Um, and then feeling that moving out of Belfast, that there was something about going north to what was perceived to be safer areas, um, but then also experiencing bombs such as say, the one on Macrofelt and the T-Ban, where the, the, a significant number of men lost their lives and uh, scarred for their futures as well. So sitting down and reflecting um, and having the opportunity to kind of reframe some of those experiences for me personally was very beneficial because it helped me to work through some of the influences that those experiences had on my practice, not just in, in working across the sectarian parameters, um, as, you know, as a mental health social worker, but also understanding some of the other conflicts around um, the paramilitary activities connected with drugs and alcohol, um, particularly, and also the stigma that was associated in some of the communities that were um, stripped of their identities as part of the um, the troubles, and where families just completely lost decades of their lives because they were so focused on trying to remain safe and trying to raise kids in, in that environment. Um, so that period of reflection during the research was certainly something that I felt was cathartic, um, that I was able to reflect on what it was like then, but also how it shaped my thinking, both as an individual, but more so as a social worker, and as a catalyst for change in, in terms of identifying other areas of oppression and looking at how social work could actually um, address those challenges and improve outcomes for the service users. Thanks, Phil. And that that strand um, in the in the research about the catharsis of sharing that was really apparent, and that seems to be something that a lot of the participants really benefited from. Is that an issue that you think many more social workers who practiced during the troubles would benefit from? Being able to share, being able to discuss um, what they went through, because I know a lot of people did kind of bottle up a lot of those terribly, uh, you know, traumatic experiences that they had to endure. Yeah. I find that some of my colleagues who had decided not to be involved in the research were they felt um, a bit of guilt whenever it came to the publicizing it and getting together in the Ulster Museum and kind of celebrating the findings. And I remember um, at that event, some of the colleagues that I had worked with in different areas had listened to Paul Martin's opening speech and said, we have missed an opportunity. Uh, we should have been involved in this. We should have had our say because we can now see the influence that that piece of research had on the social work community and on other professionals who were also uh, equally impacted on like nurses for example in, in the royal and different hospitals so i think that there are people out there who they began to talk even at that event and after it um, and made contact just even in terms of their own when we went back into our own workplaces using um, supervision sessions and peer support groups um, to talk through some of the impact and how actually talking about it released some of those ideas and feelings. So I do feel that there's an opportunity for all of the social workers to reflect again in terms of using opportunities such as the research um, to reflect on their personal experience but as a profession um, thinking about how we, we shaped ourselves during that and how we were able to influence change for the better so yeah thanks phil i'm just going to come back you mentioned paul martin for anybody who's not from northern ireland paul martin is the chair of the northern ireland social care council our regulator here and paul spoke at the the launch of the research you touched on there's a couple of things i'm keen to pick up on phil you touched on peer support the research highlights that peer support was incredibly important in helping social workers cope with the challenges that they were facing back during the troubles it highlights that although on an individual level there were many examples of managers being very supportive to social workers that were facing adversities at a structural level that wasn't always matched by employers' responses. And the researchers do note that this can be explained by the fact that employers also faced really unusual and trying circumstances for which there was inadequate recognition or preparation. But if we look back at that issue of peer support, Jerry, Phil and, and Carolyn as well, um, when you look back at the experiences that you did endure during the Troubles, um, why did peer support matter so much and, and how did it help you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's let, let Carolyn come in to say. I mean, I think the peer support thing was just was very much, you know, it was it's quite simplistic at one level. I don't use simple; I say simplistic. It was very often after a difficult experience yourself or if a colleague was having a different experience, it was just the old cup of tea and the sit down and debrief. Um, now, obviously, as time went by, the more formal structures of support and other things evolved. But I think just that uh, sort of debriefing almost. I think the other thing, and I'll let like Carolyn speak then, was um, in, in the midst of all of this too, at times, there was almost a perverse sense of humour. And, you know, that that in a way allowed you to cope because you could sometimes, almost in the middle of very dark, a dark as when see a funny aspect to it, and sometimes being able to to appreciate that sort of uh, was almost like a safety valve. So, I I think it was just a mix of the the ability to talk and debrief, and as I say, at times I think. The odd bit of humour, even if that seemed a wee bit out of place, though so I think that, and that was just something that evolved. Yeah, and for those of you you can't see, I'm vigorously nodding my head as as Jerry talks there, agreeing with him, and that that sense of team support and your your peer support it was absolutely everything. Uh, and I think actually many social workers practicing today, um, thankfully far away from the troubles, will will recognise that that your your team, you know, your colleagues who understood the really difficult, challenging role you were being asked to do, uh, but also understood the you know the, the the kind of situations that we were trying to practice in, they got that, and there was a very uh, there was a very strong sense of humour uh, at times was probably uh, on the dark side, uh, Jerry. but uh, I think that got us through lots of situations. Um, I mean, I can think back to many circumstances where, um, you know, team colleagues, seniors were just vital. Your senior is someone to come in, as you say, you know, have a cup of coffee, um, sit down and talk through what happened. We didn't really call that a debrief. We just did that. And that, that helped you cope. It helped you figure out, um, you know, put it in perspective, um, get it out of your head and, and just help you get on with the rest of your day. I think the thing that I find fascinating um is that I mean I didn't qualify until 1997. So I mean my practice came at the very end of the troubles. Uh, yet many many examples of being involved in you know riot situations, civil strife, disruption. You know we're still part of practice after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, uh, and after we had this peace uh, process in place. And so social workers were still going out and, you know, I'm thinking through the drumkey riots and stuff. You know, there were certain times of the year you knew things were going to be really unsettled and really difficult. And you almost prepared yourself for those kind of eventualities um, and tried to put stuff in place as teams for how you might cope. You know, you knew around the 12th holidays um, if there was a particular development in terms of um, parades and and routes being uh, rerouted that was going to have an impact you knew not to go out late in the afternoon you knew to do your visits early in the morning um so you were going to try and avoid difficult situations uh and i think that probably i think it's one of the things that's interesting there's probably still elements of that that linger in 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 communities today and carolyn that didn't seem abnormal one of the things that came out of the research repeatedly was the normalization of abnormality you know, in Northern Ireland, I was reflecting on this in preparation for this conversation. I was born in 1983, so I, I only grew up at the tail end of the conflict. You know, the first IRA ceasefire was in 1994. Good Friday Agreement was in 98. And I thought that growing up where I did, I, w- I grew up in a really safe town called Hollywood, just outside of Belfast. I thought that the troubles hadn't impacted my life really at all. But when I was looking back, I mean, I was friends with a kid growing up whose dad had been murdered by paramilitaries. And I also received some really quite serious albeit misdirected sectarian bullying as i was as a as a, as a, a young teenager which was really scary at the time um mercifully it hasn't had any lasting impact 
largely I think because it was misdirected. And what I mean by that is I was being bullied for being a Catholic when I was actually a Protestant. Um, I won't get into how that happened, but looking back, it seems kind of funny at the time. It wasn't that funny. Sorry, the point I'm trying to make, all of that seemed normal. Looking back, that's not normal. I imagine to any anyone listening in England, Scotland or Wales, Scotland might have some more insight into the sectarian issue, but you know, for the most part, that is not normal. And I, I would hasten to say I had it really easy growing up. You know, I did grow up somewhere safe, but all of that abnormality seemed normal. And that'll only have been a fraction of what social workers were experiencing when they were working in certain parts of Northern Ireland. Mm. And, and I think the reality, and maybe Phil wants to go, I think the reality was also different, if I can put it this way, Annie, in, in different communities. Very briefly, I remember the time of what was known as the hunger strikes, and I wasn't that long working then. We used to go out with what was called the social work assistance because uh, they had a list of vulnerable people. And every time one of the hunger strikes died, all the shops had to close for three days. There was no choice. Um, and was to make sure that these people had enough food, etc. My now wife, who was working on the opposite side of the divide at the time on the place called the Shankill Road, was also out with social work assistance. They were sorting out street parties for Charles and Diana's wedding. And I mean, this was going on within two miles of one another. So you had almost at times parallel universes with very different realities. So even your definition of what's normal and abnormal is, as Carolyn said at the beginning, is is open to question and debate. Yeah, we still have that division though. We mightn't have the conflict, we mightn't have the open conflict, but we still have that division. Belfast, for example, is still carved up. You know, that hasn't changed. We haven't become less divided as a society in the last last 20 years. Sorry, Phil, I, I forgive me, you were trying to come in there. No, I was just going to mention kind of like Northern Ireland's civil conflict and the way that people were able to go about their day-to-day lives, um, getting kids to school, getting out doing the shopping, getting searched, going into Belfast, all of that, normalised in a way that actually enabled Northern Ireland to proceed and move forward, whereas many other countries in that civil conflict weren't able to do that. And I think that was down to the resilience of people in terms of trying to hold on to what was important to them, in terms of the cultural beliefs that they had as a society, that although the division was there, that there were core values that every working class family, regardless if you were a Catholic or a Protestant, held on to. And that was about ensuring that your kids got the best possible um, opportunities in life. They ranged enormously, but it was about making sure that the kids had enough food, that you try to get them as educated as well as possible, that you try to maintain a good health um, for them, both socially and mentally. And so that level of commitment actually provided a platform um, for Northern Ireland to move forward to that many other countries in civil unrest were unable to achieve. So there's no surprise that each of the disciplines, social workers and all of the multidisciplinary um, members of different teams were able to actually absorb some of what was happening around because we were all part of those communities that were striving to normalise what was happening as well. And we were able to try and find ways to survive and to look towards the future and to look towards a future that would be better, that there would be less oppression and that we would come to a balanced and agreed way of stopping the um, the bombs, stopping the shooting, stopping the, that kind of like very high level aggression and violence within communities. Some of the peer things that we talked about earlier on in terms of peer support, I think what peer support actually did do was to stand or to provide a framework for each of the uh, social workers to actually normalise what the emotional impact was. So if you'd gone through a really difficult week or day or month or whatever was happening at that point in time, and it was having an impact on your mental well-being that you weren't able to sleep, you were either not able to eat or overeating in terms of, of using food in a different way, increasing alcohol, be more agitated and unbearable at home. There wasn't the same resources as there are now in, in our HR um, departments that could have helped us to identify that and to be almost like an informal counselling and formal counselling if that was required. 
So the peer support helped us to do that. So people who would have gone through similar situations would have said, don't be, don't be you know, concerned if your um, sleeping's going to be offline for a bit. You know, try and get out for a walk, clear your head. So we were kind of like sharing things that helped to bring us back into that grounded uh, base that we could continue to work from. Um, and that's probably the strength, I think, of peer support. And being all three of you mental health social workers, do you think you had an insight at the time? as to what your colleagues were going through, do you think you had an extra sort of understanding or was it just the same for everybody? I think probably mental health social work was better placed because we could see already the impact of trauma through um, childhood experiences and into um, teenage years as well. And the trauma in, in terms of violence, domestic violence within a household, what the impact uh, was you know, for the community and for those families. So quite a bit of that was already transferable so we could see the impact of post-traumatic stress disorders for people who had been um, actively away, you know, either as the army or wherever and, and came back again or the Navy um, and how it took them time to be kind of like regrounded. We could reflect in other countries like Vietnam in terms of that high level um, impact of post-traumatic stress disorder. So we already knew some of the tools and we already knew some of the theor- theoretical backgrounds that there was. But to actually put it into practice probably took us a bit longer um, to to understand what it was that we were doing. We were doing the things without fully um, connecting them to the theory that was behind them. And that probably took a bit of time to, to get those two things to blend much more smoothly together. And that's really fascinating. I'm just thinking of that intergenerational aspect now. You know, we're 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement and we're now only really beginning to fully understand the intergenerational aspect of trauma related to the Troubles. You'll probably be aware there was a research report prepared by Ulster University back in 2015 for the Commission for Victims and Survivors. And it found that 14% of the population here, so that's 213,000 adults, have a mental health problem directly related to the Troubles. You know, that's a huge problem. Addressing it needs to be adequately resourced. We know that in Northern Ireland, mental health services across the piece are, are inadequately resourced. How do you see the impacts of the troubles affecting the service users you've supported and how do you see the problems manifesting now in, in 2020? I think maybe just one comment I would make, Annie. I think even if you take it back, uh, whatever about folk who are experiencing clear mental health issues, I think even if you take it back to a broader level, I mean, again, I just refer to something like the OMA bomb, which is 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I live and work in OMA, as I say, it's a small market town. Um, but a lot of people who were injured and badly hurt that day were in their late teens and early 20s. And that means if you go down the town here in OMA for the next 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to be meeting people who have a very direct experience of trauma now obviously the individual effect will be will be different so what that says to me is that as i say for the next 30 40 50 years the legacy of what has gone on is going to be very much out there and in front of us and and clearly there will be a portion of those folk unfortunately who do end up with very severe mental health issues But I think just to finish, even at that broader level, it's going to take a couple of generations before you can sort of almost, I don't know what the right phrase is, maybe move on or not have that experience. And just to put that into context, Terry, the Oma bomb, that was the single greatest loss of life, I believe, during uh, the conflict. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the impacts, the legacy impacts of the Troubles, you just have to look at suicide statistics for Northern Ireland to see West Belfast, North Belfast are the two constituencies that have been the worst impacted in recent years by deaths by suicide. And they would have been two of the areas of Northern Ireland that would have been worst impacted during the Troubles. We're seeing that in terms of young people now taking their lives, young people that have probably never actually uh, grown up even during the, the conflict um, they've been born since the Good Friday Agreement uh, and those impacts are, are then cascading down generations and that's the reality that social workers mental health social workers are now working with 
Yeah, and I think one of the things we found really interesting whenever we were we did some roadshows after the research was launched, um, and we we travelled around um, Northern Ireland and kind of shared a workshop on 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 our findings and what we'd done, and was really struck. We we had a conversation with a group of students in Derry, um, all of whom were doing their their social work training, uh, all of whom most of whom sorry were born well after the the troubles had had ended. Uh, and came along out of interest, you know, viewing it as history. This wasn't something that was live for them or real for them. But actually, in having the conversation with them, uh, it was fascinating to see the penny drop when they kind of they clicked and realised, gosh, it still applies. Lots of those issues about identity um, and, and separation and segregation were still impacting them and very much still part of the people they were working with in their placements and it began to make sense that actually they needed just to ask the questions so when they were going out on visits talking with people regardless of what kind of perspective they were going out uh, what the issue was they were going to deal with it's that notion of it being trauma-informed and we talk about that a lot in terms of aces and uh, childhood you know adverse uh, incidents but actually you know all of us in northern ireland have a, have a massive trauma in our in our um in our childhoods and our experiences and it's just being prepared i think as social workers to ask that question uh and pose to people um and, and ask if there's stuff they want to talk about in terms of their experience that may well have a very real impact on their family circumstances and their situations now? I think for some of those young students who have been born um, kind of like since the Good Friday Agreement, they still have been influenced by the impact of the troubles on their parents and their grandparents and, and their community. And although it kind of like is diluted, it takes like a, easily a hundred years to actually work through a, a big impact, like the plague, like, you know, a, a kind of like, any major incident in society, that's two generations and three generations are what's required to actually absorb that and to neutralise it. And it still influences people beyond that because people will still look back and say, you know, that there wasn't a famine, for example, and they'll rationalise it depending on their own cultural background. And for some people, they will talk about the troubles that, oh, the troubles couldn't have been as bad as what some older people will recount. And they'll think, well, what's the difference? You know, what, why was there all of this kind of like hullabaloo around Catholics and Protestants? That fear actually still exists within quite a number of our communities today. Thankfully, we've moved significantly along the journey of recovery for communities and for personal recovery journeys as well. But there is, are still those elements that will almost every so often raise its head. Um, and you, we can see that around the voting um, times, you know, where we still are very much polarised in terms of the orange and the green. We all want to be in that neutral corner, but when people feel anxious or concerned, they gravitate back into what is their own kind of like comfort zone. They're not necessarily 100% agree with the orange and the green divide, but they don't know how to actually get themselves out of that. So that's part of the recovery and the equality, diversity and interdependence model that we need to be working with to try and support communities, service users, organisations actually to move forward um, and to heal. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. So those new people, those new social workers that you spoke to in Derry, Carlin, are kind of like the, the next stage of the vehicle of social work to actually help that continued recovery and healing in communities and to help people to move towards that much more neutral position, which is where we all need to move to, to try and recover uh, ground that is, has been lost and heal the wounds of the past. That's so important, Phil. And and uh, the, the question I wanted to ask in relation to that is, you know, we've had a peace process for many years. I've grown up through it. We've never had anything resembling a reconciliation process. You know, the sectarian divisions in our society, they remain present. For some people, they're very, very raw. For some people, they are just in the background it's it's not it's not a real aspect of their thinking social work is a profession that's centered on relationship building and helping individuals overcome barriers which limit their life opportunities so with this in mind what role do you, you feel the profession has to play in addressing the divisions in society in helping society heal what practical steps can social workers take to help bring about change i'll ask you first phil because you raised this um, I think social workers are really well placed in terms of the 
social work methodology that we apply in our practice, um, that we, there is a continual um, emphasis in terms of enabling the service user, the person that you're working with, to change their situation and to look at, at what they can do themselves in terms of being very much strength-based, what they can do rather than what they can't do. And when we start to work with individuals as part of a society in a systematic approach, trying to help people to see how they connect to the other communities and schools and where we sit within our own kind of like bigger communities, that helps people to feel less isolated and less stigmatised. So, for example, um, a Catholic family who's living in a predominantly Protestant, fa Protestant family's area will, for the bulk of the year, feel comfortable and safe in doing so. But if there's something either paramilitary um, driven, maybe where there's been a shooting in that area, everyone becomes anxious again and becomes frightened. And I think it's about the social workers that are involved alongside the community leaders in those patches to help people to reflect and to look at the strengths that they do have in terms of moving forward in a much more positive way and looking and understanding the differences and the similarities. Because one of the things that struck me um, kind of like in the, in the early um, 2000s was people began to actually talk about, you know what, I didn't realise that that family were going through exactly the same as what I was. They were dealing with the same challenges of unemployment, of poverty, of uh, mental illness within the family. They were, regardless of whether they were Catholics or Protestants, they were having a very similar experience um, through life. And helping people to understand that the, the similarities and appreciate the interdependence that families had within communities, help people to actually understand we have a way that we can actually recover and move forward together in this. And social work is the catalyst to actually open those communications. The other area that I think is really important for social work is the focus on anti-oppressive practice. So where you see discrimination that you actually, not just with that family, but with the local communities, work to address the oppression and look at how the kind of the bullying element or the uh, influences from the community that are actually placing that family or individuals at risk are reflected back to the people who are actually carrying out those behaviours and that we use the structures and the networks within the communities to address that in a way that makes it safer to address it, to actually be able to call it out and say, this isn't um, equal opportunities, this isn't uh, fair play, this is about um, challenging where the oppression is coming from and doing it in a way that we don't isolate ourselves, but we do it as joint voices alongside our, our counsellors, our MLAs, our, you know, our, our local community leaders. That's how social work helps to change and to move things forward. The catalyst for beginning conversations and to help people to see the systematic approach that's needed um, to help the healing process. Thanks, Phil. And that oppression, it's so prevalent and it's so insidious. I have a friend who's involved in a food bank in North Belfast. He was telling me that, that he, you know, he's, he's aware of paramilitaries targeting people that are using the food bank to loan shark to them. You know, that's, that's what's still happening. So when you're saying about standing up to that oppression, you're standing up to bad, bad people, you know, that are still dangerous people. And that's something that then social work needs to be recognised. The role that social workers are playing needs to be recognised, needs to be resourced, needs to be supported, because that's not easy work. I, I think another point on that, Andy, too, that's important, uh, just drawing together some of the comments that Carol and, and, and Phil have been making is, as social workers, is our own self-awareness. Because the reality, as people said earlier, is Northern Ireland remains very much a divided community. And any of us who were born in Northern Ireland carry a certain DNA of the community that we're born into. That, that to me is the reality. Now, most of us, in a sense, can manage that and in terms of our professional activity. But if outside events, as uh, somebody referred to earlier, if the temperature starts to escalate, what we can find is that it can reawaken or trigger off those unconscious pieces within our own makeup. So I think whatever we do as social workers in terms of moving this issue forward, 
we need to also have a big degree of self-awareness of our own makeup. I mean, I think a, a small example, I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, Phil talked about ARADP, anti-racist and anti-discriminatory practice. We were the best in the world at anti-racist practice. But we didn't dare go near anti-discriminatory practice because that involved looking at... It was too close to home. Do, do you know? So I think we, we... Social work has a huge amount to offer, but I know particularly for students coming, and this was the point linking back to what Carolyn was saying about students who are around today. I think we all as social workers need to be self-aware of the baggage that we all maybe unconsciously carry as a result of being born into and reared in a divided society. And I'm just coming back to that issue of students now, students that are being trained now and young social workers that are working now, the support that they're receiving, I'm keen to talk about that. I mean, Northern Ireland, we are still divided. I made this point earlier. I was reading um, Police Service of Northern Ireland statistics yesterday. In the year ending October 31st, 2020, there were 13 paramilitary-style shootings. There were 44 paramilitary-style assaults. Lara McKee was shot and killed in Derry in April 2019. We still have violence in the society. So what support is in place for social workers that are out um, doing child protection work in, in Craigan uh, or in, in Shanko Road? What, 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 what does it look like now for those staff from an employer's point of view? I think it's probably a couple of things, Andy, that have changed how social workers are viewed not just within their employment but also by the wider society so it's in the troubles it wasn't necessarily that you were seen as being having anything to contribute and certainly standing up in the middle of a a riot and saying that you were a social worker or that you had a critical childcare work to carry out wouldn't have always been sufficient to get safe passage into that person's that child's home things have moved on much more uh, in terms of recognition of the profession Whereas from my practice, I can see that um, PSNI, MLAs, counsellors, other disciplines value the input that social workers have so that it's, it's about ensuring that we're supported by the complete system, that if there's issues around child protection or there are people with very poor mental health who live in marginalised communities who need support, that we're supported to go in there, not just going in kind of like on a high state on our own, but you're you're supported by the PSNI, you're supported by the councillors and the communities in that area, and also by the spiritual leaders. So it's we're much more integrated in terms of our support. Um, and there isn't the same fear or threat for the police to go into some of the areas that we would have had to access during the troubles that they would not have been able to see if they've gone into it probably would have been much more dangerous to go in with the police than it would have been to go in on your own that's changed um so whereas there's now much more human based right decisions as to when it's appropriate to involve um the psnis for support um to extract some of those people from their very dangerous situations and risky situations for a detention into hospital you don't do that on your own. You do it with a GP. You do it with the place where it's appropriate. You do it also involve um, the local councillors if there's an issue around the impact of drugs in that area and the impact it has on those people with mental health problems. So there's a joined up process. Then back in terms of our employers, we all have now regular professional and operational supervision. So we have opportunities both operationally but also professionally to talk about the situations that we're dealing with, about the impact that it has on us uh, personally. We're encouraged to develop as reflective practitioners. So we learn from each experience and we integrate that new learning into our practice. So there's lots and lots of different ways that we're supported now as social workers that weren't well established um, back in the 80s and even in the 70s as well. Thanks, Phil. That's really, really helpful to know. I've got one last question. It's coming back to this concept of the the normalizing the abnormal and it's bringing it up to the the current period in COVID-19. We're currently living through a very, very unusual period. COVID-19 has turned things upside down for so many aspects of our lives. So 
What I want to ask you as we finish, is there anything, is there any learning that you think could be taken from social workers' experiences during the abnormality of the Northern Ireland conflict that can be applied to the current pandemic? Yeah, um, I I think uh, pulling together a lot of what was said, the, the, the one thing I would say is the importance of li- listening to people's story. Um, that's how we re- that's how we operate a lot of our lives and our activities. We live through story and the ability to recount story. So I think in terms of the impact of uh, COVID, um, everybody has a story in a sense to tell about COVID. Um, I find one of the interesting reflections was being at more on the twilight side of things. Um, I'm 65. I'm a type 1 diabetic for over 30 years. So I tick all the vulnerable boxes, you know, and you have this idea that you're almost now on the service side of things rather than on the, the other. But so I... I, I but those divides are a bit artificial. I think, if you think back, and I'll finish with it, if you think back to the Troubles and listen to what Phil and Carolyn were saying, everybody, everybody in, goes through the, who went, lived through the trouble has their story to tell. And it's the same with COVID. And there is nobody better placed to listen to those stories and help try and make sense of those stories for people than the social work profession. That that's that's what I yeah. would feel. And I, I would build on that, Jerry, to say, I mean, the, the lessons we learned from from the research were that that informal peer support was really integral. Uh, but I suppose what we were reflecting on was, well, that's not enough. We need structural support in place as well. And Phil, you've mentioned there how things have changed and moved on and we've kind of learned a bit and we've looked at having, you know, more organisational supports in place. I suppose I, I I wonder when I look at some of the experiences that we hear about in Baswa uh, in terms of social workers being involved and some of the, the challenges within, you know, violence in workplaces, those kind of things. I think we need to assume an impact from the work that we do of social work. We just need to assume there's an impact. In ordinary circumstances, there's an impact through the job that we do as social workers. So in extraordinary circumstances like the Troubles and like COVID, we know that impact will be magnified. And so I think it is incumbent upon us uh, as leaders within social work and employers to ensure there are really good proactive supports in place and almost not wait for there to be a problem presenting, but build structures in that assume an impact and give social workers the space and time, as you say, Jerry, to tell their story, to to to, to offload, to reflect, and and to um to try and understand what it is they've been experiencing. Thanks, Carolyn. Final word to Phil. Yes, some of the things that I think are similar between practicing in the troubles and practicing within the kind of like the particularly the first phase of, of the COVID pandemic was one the the fear factor in both was actually qu- quite similar because as social workers working during the troubles you were placing yourself in very risky situations on a day-by-day basis as you were carrying out childcare mental health um, practice and when we as social workers for those of us who did support the care homes and actually went into the care homes to work there, we were also physically placing ourselves at risk of infection, but also bringing the infection back into our own homes again. And I think that there was something for me, reflecting on both of those periods of my life, that there was a real element of fear. And although I tried to take the measures that I felt were the most appropriate ones to keep me as safe as possible, there was that kind of like nitty stomach churning anxiety for both of those periods as well thinking well, what if I am bringing trouble back home to my own door either from the troubles or or from COVID. The other two things that I think that were just that stood out remarkably for, for me was the impact of isolation. In the troubles there were families who were cocooned within their small um, communities that were no one could get to 
And for some of those families, they were living in poverty with high levels of violence and particularly domestic violence between male, the, the, the partners, the man and, and the, the woman in the, that family. They were so isolated that they didn't have the connections that they needed to either ask for help or was it safe for them to ask for help with that kind of like a um, culture that they came from. And we saw that again within COVID where people were being isolated within their own homes. They weren't able to get out um, on a regular basis. For some people, they were literally on, on lockdown in, in their own homes and not physically even able to get out for their one hour in, in the day's kind of exercise. So that impact of isolation and what that does to you mentally was reflected in both of those periods because people became more frightened in terms of what the potential was for the future. They felt that they had lost control of their own futures and their decision making because we were waiting eagerly um, day by day and week on week for the governments to direct us in a way that was going to resolve some of the problems and for the troubles that took quite a long time. But within COVID, the solutions didn't really come quick enough either because we were working into our 15th and our 16th week to try and stop the high number of deaths in some of those care homes. And this was care that was being provided by people who had been doing excellent jobs uh, and the patients had become going from residential really into acute nursing care in a period of like two or three days and some of them in the palliative stages as well. So the, the isolation and vulnerability are key factors across both of those. And when, you th when we reflect back in terms of how do we actually support people to move forward, there is a storytelling that Jerry has talked about. But it's also that bit of reflective practice, helping us as social workers to actually look at the theory behind the experience so that we can actually understand it better. We can communicate better what the actual impact is for the people who are experiencing it and to bring a candle of hope. Because if as social workers, we can't bring that candle of hope into those desperate, dark days for people, we've really lost the purpose of social work because what we all trained to do was to improve the outcomes for the service users by helping them to be to self-empower, to find ways to build in the strengths that they had. So our candles of help and hope and support are what really that we do across both of those areas, our eras, um, both in the troubles and also with COVID. And it's something that society will need as we move forward over the next two years. Hopefully have a vaccination, uh, have it been distributed throughout the springtime. But realistically, we're talking about two years to get some degree of normality back in again. So that candle of hope that social work brings with the expectations that we will work together to achieve the best outcomes are what we're bringing to the table now um, as we move forward. Phil, Jerry, Carolyn, thank you so much for giving up your time. You've given us a huge amount to think about. Until the next time, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks. A pleasure as always. And stay safe.